morning. We're going to be uh, continuing our study in the book of Romans this morning. If you want to open up your Bibles, we're going to be in Romans chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 18 to 23. And uh, we started uh, this series in Romans a couple weeks ago. Um, and I have to just say I love the book of Romans. I mean, I, if you're allowed to have a favorite book of the Bible, this is my favorite book of the Bible. Because Romans is one of the most uh, expansive, deep, challenging books of the Bible. And I, I would argue it's one of the most incredible works uh, of writing that we have in human history. I mean, you read Romans and you're like, man, the mind behind this. Obviously, it's the mind of God. We believe that the Holy Spirit inspired the book of Romans. But just the mind of the Apostle Paul, how he, you know, I mean, this is a, he weaves together all these theological ideas and makes them very practical. And he does it in such a poetic and powerful way. And the book of Romans, it's a letter to a church. Paul is writing this letter to the church at Rome because he wants to use the church at Rome as sort of a, a missions base so he can plant churches in Spain. And so this is written by not just a theologian, not just a pastor, but a missionary, a, a guy with a passion for spreading the gospel to the nations. And you can feel the passion in all the words that he writes. So I love the book of Romans. I love every chance I get to, to teach on it and to talk about it. And uh, we're going to get a chance to look at it this morning. So if you would, read along with me. I'm going to read Romans 1, 18 to 23, and we'll open up the word together. This is Romans 1. 18 to 23. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Let's pray together for our time in the Word. Father, we pray that you would affect us with your words, that these would not fall on deaf ears or on blind eyes, but that you'd give us hearing, you'd give us sight. Lord, we come here with many sins, we come here with many weaknesses and failings, and we come to hear a good word from you, a word of salvation, a word of comfort, a word of assurance. Help us to believe your word and for it to minister to us. That's what you have given it to us for. And stir up our love for you and your word and your law. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to talk about the wrath of God. A good old fire and brimstone sermon. Uh, this is a, it's a very challenging 
chapter, and, and oftentimes it's, it's spoken of in this way. You know, before you can have the good news, which is what gospel means, good news. Before you can have the good news, you need to have the bad news, the bad news of God's wrath. Uh, and there's truth to that, but I want to push back a little bit. And, and I don't think that, that God's wrath should be viewed as bad news in this respect. We want a God of love and justice and truth to be wrathful against evil. We want that. I, I, I'm thinking, I was thinking earlier this week, you know, reading different uh, tributes and articles reflecting on 20 years since 9-11. And I remember I was in middle school when that happened, and it was just like, you know, even though I was just like, like a kid, it, just, it was like the world just changed. And it was so disorienting. And I'm like, what, what is happening? And I remember the weeks afterwards in our nation, there was this moral clarity that emerged. Is we just this is this sober mindedness of there's evil in the world. I mean, there's there's real darkness in this world. This world has weight. There are stakes to life and death. And I think we all felt, no matter what nationality or what uh, or what, what what ethnicity or what political group or tribe or whatever you believed, if you were an American, you felt this sort of righteous indignation. You felt this anger. This isn't right. This, this can't be unaccounted for. And that righteous indignation is, is a proper response when we see evil. And we get a little glimpse of the heart of God towards sin and darkness in the world. And we also get a, a glimpse of how destructive sin is in our own lives. So God's wrath is actually good news that God cares about evil in the world. It matters to him. He's not indifferent, floating in some cloud, watching the world. But that good and evil are real things, and they matter, and God is involved with it. And this is where good news bursts forth. Right? The good news of Romans is that in this world of darkness, God has done something. The gospel, the good news, is an historical event. This is so key to get if you want to understand Romans. The apostle Paul, what, what drove him to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? What drove him to give his life to preaching this? It's not because he thought he came up with a new way to live life or an interesting philosophy, or some comforting thing for if you're dying and you'll know you go to heaven, or something like that. Those are all wonderful benefits of the gospel, but fundamentally, what, what Paul was saying is something happened in human history. God raised his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the opening of the book of Romans, and that son has now been exalted on the throne of David, not just as king of Israel, but the Lord of the earth, of all the nations of the world. And the response to this historical event must be repentance and faith. All the nations must obey by faith this king that God has raised. So we're not out here telling people about Jesus with the hopes that if we get enough votes, he'll become Lord. We are telling people Jesus is Lord, and you need to get on board. It doesn't matter whether you 
believe it or not, whether you like it or not, whether you think it's crazy or not, it's something that happened. God has invaded human history, and he has done something, and everything changes now. So the gospel is a historic message about what God has done to deal with sin, to deal with evil in the world. But not only that, Paul says in 16 and 17, 1, 16 and 17, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. That the actual proclamation of the gospel is God's power manifesting into the world and changing things and doing something. It's not just some message we say. It is divine power coming through this message about this historical event. It makes a claim on every person who hears it. It makes a claim on you. It makes a claim on me. And so it's in light of this historical event that we recognize God's wrath. The fact that God had to enter in means that there is a problem he has with sin. And when we think about God's wrath, I mean, we look in verse 18, it says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So this divine wrath, this idea of being revealed, is not just telling someone something, but the, the word revealed, it's, it's, it's the word that means apocalypse. It's a tearing of the veil between heaven and earth. You know, you, you want a sign from God? Here's your sign from God. God has pierced the veil and unleashed and shown to us in this world the reality of sin and his opposition to it. So wrath, God's wrath, is when his holiness and his love for good clashes with our corruption, clashes with our sin. It's that chemical reaction between the two. That's his wrath. And anger, God's anger towards sin is a proper response. Any, any persecuted people group in the world knows that wrath is a proper response to injustice, a righteous kind of indignation, a, a sense that this is not right. This is not right. And it angers me that something not right is happening. Righteousness matters. And so the Apostle Paul in chapters 1 and 2, he, he points out that there's going to be one day of judgment at the end where God's going to render to each person according to his works. So on, at the end of history, when Jesus Christ returns, he's going to judge all people for their sins. So there's a final judgment that's coming. But Paul also says, and especially in this particular section, that there's a wrath of God that's present. It's not just future, but it's present. It's being revealed right now. And it's what people call the passive wrath of God. So the, God, the, the wrath of God at the end of time is God's active judgment, but, but there's a passive judgment happening now in which God allows us and gives us over to our sin. He effectively says to us, if you want this, go have it. Go take your fill. That he removes the restraints and allows us to continue down the downward spiral of our destruction. C.S. Lewis has a great quote where he basically says this, salvation is saying, Lord, your will be done. And damnation is God looking at you and saying, no, your will be done. You do what you want all the way down to your own destruction. But in God's grace, his passive wrath for those who hear the gospel is actually a grace to us. It's sort of like the, in the prodigal son, the, the, the son who runs off and he leaves his father's house and he, he's sitting there in, in, in a pile of you know, pig food and he's, he's sitting there going, what, what's happened to my life? What am I doing? 
Sometimes that's God's passive wrath. He lets you go down this dark path till you get to your senses and you realize, what am I doing? And you repent. So sometimes God's passive wrath is his means of bringing us to grips with the fact that we are being consumed by our sinful desires. God wants us to wake up. And the only solution to this downward spiral of sin is Jesus. Is Jesus. Now I want to talk about two aspects of what it means to be part of this, uh, to, to be under sin. What does it mean to be a sinner? What are two aspects? And I think these are two categories Paul gives us. Apart from grace, we're going to do two things as sinners. One, we're going to suppress the truth. We're going to suppress the truth. And the second thing we do is we're going to substitute our worship. We're going to take the worship God deserves and give it to something else. And it's those two things that the gospel of Jesus Christ transforms in us when you come to Christ. So we're going to look at those two ideas. We're going to start with the fact that we suppress the truth. We are sinners and we suppress the truth. We see in verse 18 that God's wrath has a very specific target. It is against a specific target. The ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And he basically says this, look, you know that God exists. All of creation testifies to it. The created world, the visible created world, testifies to the invisible creator, God. And in your sin, you deny that truth. But notice what he says. To deny God is not just to be like, oh, I'm sophisticated, I'm a, you know, I like to look at all the sides and all these things. No, he says it's a moral issue. It's not just intellectual, it's moral. If you deny the truth that God has revealed in his creation, you're a rebel. You are unrighteous. You are ungodly. So we're born into this world with this anti-God bias. We're not objective observers to the facts of the world. Now you might say to yourself, well, I'm not an atheist. You know, I, I appreciate things about Christianity, and I think it gives good morals in society, and I think it Some of my favorite people are Christians. See, that doesn't get you off the hook. Think about it. When when Paul is writing Romans, he's not writing to a bunch of atheists. Or he's not planting churches or preaching the gospel to people who don't believe in the supernatural, who don't believe in a higher power, or who don't believe in gods. The issue isn't that we fail to check the box that says, I believe a God exists. The issue is we do not treat the God we know exists as God. We don't treat God and worship him as God. We think of him as a cosmic vending machine or a therapist or, you know, an old grandpa that blesses football teams or curses them sometimes. And, or, or this sort of special energy that binds us together and it's very mystical and spiritual and all these things. But what we're actually doing there is we're suppressing the truth. God made us in his image and in our sin we try to do the same thing to him. We try to make him into our image. We try to make God into what we want him to be rather than receiving him as he is, as he has revealed himself. God has revealed his eternal power and his divine nature in the things that have been made. He has 
declared his glory in the heavens. That's what Psalm 19 says. All creation bears the fingerprints of its creator. And it's, you know, you, people might say, well, you can't prove God exists. You can't place him under a microscope. You can't show me. And it's like, what? God knows that he's invisible. He says, God, God himself says, I'm invisible. But he's not invisible the way that an imaginary friend is invisible. He's invisible in the way that an author is invisible to the characters in a story. He transcends the story. And yet, his fingerprints are on every word of every page. And that's the way that God is. We can see the effect of his work in our world. And we can see his fingerprints in the beauty and glory of creation and in our design. That's the truth about the world. And it's been clearly perceived. That's a key word Paul uses there. Clearly perceived since the foundation of the world. And suppressing the truth is we look at God's story about the world and we replace it with our own. I heard a pastor once say, he was in a marriage counseling session, and he told the husband, who was a particularly irritable guy, he said, are you the kind of guy that gets bad service in every restaurant he goes to? And what's he saying there? We spin false narratives about ourselves. To him, he's the victim of all these terrible, this conspiracy theory of all these restaurants in the world who just want to make his life miserable. But what's the truth? Maybe it's you, man. Maybe there's something wrong with you. Right? We, we talk about being skeptical of authorities and the news and social media and all these things, and perhaps rightfully so. But rarely are we skeptical about the ways that we tell our own stories, that we speak to ourselves. Are we the most reliable narrator of what's going on? Oftentimes, not. Ask your friends. <laughs> They'll tell you. And so... Part of this suppression is telling ourselves a false narrative about life. Here's a story that we tell ourselves, at least in our culture. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. No heaven, no hell, just now. All that matters is right is what's right in front of your face. All of our experience of beauty and friendship and love and life and it's just atoms smashing against each other. Chemical responses in our brain. And the sky is still and there's no purpose or meaning to any of it. What does God say? He's the good creator God. In the beginning was God. He makes creation as a gift. Not because he needs to create, but because he wants to share this gift with his creatures. All of life, all of creation is a divine gift from God, overflowing from him. And he made all things good, all things with purpose, all things with an intrinsic beauty. And he made us to be his image bearers, to have dignity. And even after the fall, we're not as evil as we could be. God still has preserved the goodness of human nature in us despite our taintedness by sin. He has still preserved the image of God in us. And we look at that glorious truth and we reject it and we would trade it for the false narratives. But God says, everyone knows this. 
everyone's suppressing it. Therefore, everyone, everywhere, is without excuse. You are without excuse. So God speaks in the book of nature and the book of Scripture. Nature is underneath the book of Scripture, but it's still a guide. And we reject what nature tells us. We reject the truth about God. And it's popular to say that people, you know, well, I'm an agnostic. Well, the word agnostic, the, the Greek word gnosis means knowledge. And the ah, if you put a prefix of ah, that's a negation. So you're saying lacking knowledge, no knowledge. To be, agno- to be agnostic is to be ignorant. It's not to be sort of this floating, elevated, you know, open-minded person. It's actually to be very close-minded to the very truth that's before your eyes. It is, as the Bible says, ignorant and foolish. This is why we can say with a straight face that you can be a man trapped in a woman's body. And it's also why we all felt uncomfortable that I just said that. Why? There's a suppression of truth. And later on, Paul says, even the Gentiles know this. You know, the Gentiles don't have the Old Testament. They're non-Jewish people. They don't have the law. But their own conscience condemns them. When they do something wrong, they don't need the Bible to know, man, this is against the truth. This is not right. You know, if, if we don't even live up to our own standards, much less God's. But why is that? Why do we have this sense of inadequacy, moral inadequacy? If you could, you know, if, if someone could know that they could cheat on their spouse with an absolute 100% guarantee that there'd be no harmful effects from it, their kids would be fine, the spouse would never know, and their life would go on uninterrupted, and they did it, they would still feel the sense of guilt. No one got hurt. Nobody will know. It's not going to affect anything. Why is there that guilt? Why is there something gnawing in us that that's not right? Because we know we're accountable. We know we're accountable. And God drives that in. But Christians, we can see. And one of the glories of being converted, it's like, sort of like you know when a kid gets adopted out of a terrible situation into a great family. One of the effects is you see how great this family is and you look back and you go, man, that's the better the family the more you realize how terrible your previous situation was. And as a Christian, when you become adopted into the family of God and you know God's love and, his, and his, his, his care for you and his grace towards you, and you look back and you're like, what was I doing? I was blind. I was foolish. So a converted person is someone who realizes the full depth of what they were saved from. And they see reality as it is. And it gives us a great sense of gratitude that God cared enough about us to pull us away from that. So we suppress the truth and unrighteousness. The second thing we do is we substitute our worship. We substitute our worship. So sin doesn't just remove, or sin doesn't, it doesn't remove our desire to worship. It redirects it towards false God. That's what idolatry means. So our problem, Paul says, is that we know God, but we refuse to honor him and to give thanks to him. We take God and make him something common, something we just add to our life, like a little ornament. Uh, St. Augustine, he's a great church theologian from from history. One of the things he says is human beings are curved in on themselves. We're self-focused. 
right? We're the center of our own universe, center of our own solar system, and everything orbits around us. And if you're focused on yourself, what are you not focused on? God and your neighbor. So there's this selfishness vortex that is our sinful nature. Doug Wilson has this example where he says, you know, if, if, if apart from grace, we're the center of our universe and everything rotates around it. And he says this, he says, sometimes people think becoming a Christian is just adding a Jesus planet to your solar system, another thing to orbit around you. He says, oh, that's, that's not what conversion is. It's that you are replaced in the middle. You are no longer the center of the solar system. Christ is. And now everything in your life revolves around that. That's what it means to worship God. That's what it means to be converted. And when we put Christ at the center, when we orbit around him, when we worship him, something happens to us. We become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. This is a, a, a theme throughout the entire Bible. Listen to 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul says, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So as we worship God, as we place Christ at the center, what happens? We become Christ-like. We become like him. We begin to reflect his character. The image of God that God gave us that was tainted by sin becomes renewed. We become what we were created to be. We become more like ourselves, more like what we were designed to be. But there's a flip side to that as well, if we become like what we worship. If we worship idols, we will become like them as well. Listen to Psalm 135. This is verses 15 to 18. The idols of the nation are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. And those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. What happens when we worship idols? We become like them. And isn't it interesting when Jesus is preaching in the Gospels, he calls people who reject the message, he says, oh, that you would have ears to hear and eyes to see. Idols make us deaf, dumb, and blind to the things of God. That's why in verse 21, Paul says, we become what? Futile in our thinking, and our foolish hearts are darkened. We become more and more deadened to the things of God as we embrace idols, things that are not God. And even as Christians, we can fall into habits of idolatry. We can still be tempted by that. But here's the big idea with idols. Idols are an insult to the goodness of God. Idols are an insult to the goodness of God. Look at what Paul focuses on in verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And what are they, what's the exchange? We take the glory of the immortal God and replace it with worship towards mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Why does he use those words? Well, he's talking about Genesis 1. Listen to Genesis 1.30. God says to Adam and Eve, And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. So the beasts and the birds and the things that creep on the earth were given as God's good gifts to humanity for them to rule over. And in idolatry, what happens? Instead of us ruling those things, those things rule us. It flips the created order. We become less than what God created us to be. We were created to be glorious rulers over God's good creation, 
and we have now become ruled by his creation. It's not a coincidence that Eve was tempted by a creeping thing, a snake. That Adam and Eve listened to the words of creation rather than their creator. And what did Satan say? Isn't it strange that God doesn't want to eat you from one tree? He's afraid you'll be like him. What should Eve have said? We're already like God. We're made in his image. What's Satan trying to do? He's saying, God's not good. This whole garden full of beauty and joy and life with him, but he's withholding one thing. Isn't that suspicious? And all of humanity falls from that moment. Idolatry kills gratitude by insulting God's goodness. Now, I don't think any of us have shrines of animal figures in our backyard that we bow to. If you do, just don't say anything. But that does not mean we lack idols. There's this amazing moment in the book of Acts, Acts 17, where the apostle Paul, he's, he enters into Athens, the city of Athens. And it says that his spirit was provoked within him. It was stirred up. It was this angst when he saw that the city was full of idols. Sees these statues to Greek and Roman gods and these temples uh, sacrificing and with, with temple prostitutes and all kinds of things happening around him. And he's stirred up by it. Now, if you go to Athens today, you're not going to see that, or at least you're not going to see it active. But you will still see idols. They'll just be in the form of cleverly marketed ads to prey on your covetousness and your discontent and your vanity. You're going to see the idols of consumerism and materialism and self-expression and, and pleasure. Everything bows at the feet of those things. Those idols are still alive. And those idols of materialism and status and success and self-expression and, and, and all these things can still seep into the church. I mean, how can we tell our kids that God is the center of everything when we come to church like every once in a while to worship him. But we will drop everything if there's a chance at academic achievement or athletic achievement. Or how we can feel so burdened and maybe even rightfully so. We can post online about this cause and that cause and we need to be aware about this and, all. and, and that's good, but we won't even talk to the people in our pews. We, our ideal Sundays, we come in, we get out, hoping that nobody sees us. Is that part of the idol of, of consumerism, of self-focus, of, of believing that, that we get to direct our whole lives? These can seep into the church. This is why we stress things like worshiping on Sunday or Coming to our weekly prayer night. We have a weekly prayer night on Tuesdays. Or we have Bible studies. Or we have community groups. And we just encourage people to serve one another. Not, not because we don't get gold stars from God for doing this. Why do we do this? Because we're Christians. Because we're saved by God. Because we're redeemed from the foolish and vain idols of the world. Back to worship of the true God. And I think it's naive to think that just an hour and 15 minutes sitting here 
is enough to stave off the constant bombardment of the idols of our age. You are being preached to every single day. You are being told another gospel every single day. You are being discipled every single day. And I don't know that this is enough to overcome that tidal wave that's coming against us. So we need to pray with each other. We we need to study the word together. We need to serve each other. We need to look each other in the eye and really be a church for one another because we're the people of God. That's what God has saved us for. And God wants us to know the joy of the Lord. What happens when we worship the idols? We become numb and deaf and blind. But when we worship the the true and living God, what happens to us? We We become true and living people. We become what God designed us to be. If you want to taste and know that the Lord is good, the joy of the Lord, well, it's going to be very hard if we're just giving in to the idols of our culture. And we need to be a church together, worshiping, singing, praying, taking the Lord's Supper, to bend us out of ourselves, outward towards God and our neighbor. So what's the hope that we have? What's the good news? For non-Christians, it's a simple question. And maybe you're here today, you're, you're not, you know, I'm not a Christian, and, and that's, we're glad that you're here. And I would just ask you, you know, how's it going for you, pursuing all of your pleasures, all of the things that you thought would give you fulfillment? Is it actually doing that? Well, that might be God's grace to you to say, you know, you might want to reconsider what you're bending your life towards. And there's a gracious and good God who cares about you and doesn't want you to keep going down that path. But you know what? The gospel's not just for non-Christians. It's for Christians. It's for us. Christians need the gospel too to be reminded that despite the tugs and temptations of the world, none of those idols will die for you. None of those idols care about you the way that the Lord Jesus Christ does. You know, there's one other place that God's wrath is revealed against unrighteousness. That's at the cross. Where Jesus Christ, the righteous, takes the place of the unrighteous. That's the gospel. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. And in the cross, we see the perfect justice of God and the mercy of God when Jesus Christ willingly took on our sin and God treated him on the cross as if he lived our life and now treats us as if we lived his. And that's the resurrection. What does resurrection mean? It's a new beginning. Christ has been raised from the dead and we too can be raised to a new life, back to God, away from the idols that draw us in. The righteous the unrighteous. You know, we, 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 just, we sung about freedom. What is freedom? It's not the ability to do anything that you want. It's the ability to do what you ought to do, what you were made to do. That's true freedom. That's what the gospel offers. We're no longer slaves to sin. We become children of God sons and daughters of a living God. And that reorders our worship back to him. 
And, you know, when you grip something too tightly and your nails dig into your hands and it hurts and it bleeds, that's what we do to our idols. We grip them harder. It hurts more. And the imitation of the gospel is this. Let it go. What is that thing that would stop you from trusting Christ now? What is that thing? What are you refusing to just let go? Because what is repentance? It is turning. It is a turning of the mind away from sin, away from that horrible master that sin is toward God, the God who made you, who loves you, and who in the face of an unrighteous world, a face of rebels, what does he do? He saves sinners. That's his target demographic. That's who he's after. He's after sinners. He's after rebels. He looks at rebels and he says, I want to adopt them into my family. And not only that, but he puts on flesh and dwells among us. He becomes like us to redeem our humanity. That's how we know God loves this horrible mess called humanity. He is attached to himself, a human nature forever in Jesus Christ. God is gracious. What's in your hand? Let it go. Let's pray.